whole online recording thing was supposed to make it easier for us. <laughs> <laughs> that whole internet thing was supposed to make it easier for us. Oh, uh, we've, we've all failed here. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Mike Burns, developer in our New York office. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It is uh, an absolute pleasure. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you today is you just released an absolutely gigantic application security guide in so far as guides within our organization go. Uh, I think it's one of the largest that we have in there. So can you talk just a little bit about the sort of origin story of this document, why you felt it was necessary to to put in what I assume was a a good amount of time to write all this down and to collect all this information? Yeah, so concretely, I'm on a project right now that has medical data in it. So everyone's very concerned about security. And I happen to know some things about security. And like, I spent a lot of my free time reading about it. And, you know, I started the security channel at ThoughtBot and it's an interest of mine, but mm-hmm. not ev- not everyone at the company has that interest. And it's totally fair for them to have other interests. At the same time, it is still a very important thing for all of us to have the basics of. And even if you don't have like an understanding of, you know, why you choose a specific algorithm instead of another, just knowing that you should choose a specific algorithm instead of another is something that we need to know as consultants. And so I basically made it to level us up all to a level playing field where we can all have a baseline understanding of what goes into building a more secure application. Indeed. And in classic ThoughtBot style, this is uh, something that is now part of our public guide. So we'll certainly include a link in the show notes. But I love that that is the natural mode that almost everything we do ends up in the public space in one way or another. Kudos to you and thank you for putting in the effort here. So as I said, the documents, it's long and it's got a lot of different pieces. I'm sort of putting you on the spot here, but (laughs) should a developer know each of the things that you have? Like, do you consider this the foundational layer of knowledge? Do you consider this like, if you've got this, you're solid on security, but it would be okay to work with a little bit less? Like, what level of knowledge do you think this document represents now? I lean closer towards foundational. Everything in there is web or mobile app oriented. So I didn't write things about C buffer overflows or anything. I feel that the at least table of contents is a good outline for the basics of app security. And I tried to keep each section small-ish. It took me maybe maybe 12 hours to write the whole thing. It's not massive. It is a cumulative, you know, I've been researching this stuff for a while. So it, it took me a while to learn it all. But as far as just giving it a read through, give it a nice skim. You don't have to memorize it. Just use it as a reference document. Yeah, and I think it is, it's structured well so that it's got the different sections and it's possible to peruse it. I think that's sort of more mm-hmm. of what I've been doing. I'm like, oh, I think I know what that one is. But then there's a section on encryption that starts to dig deeper into some of those pieces. So I would love to dig into a few of them. I want to start with probably my favorite, which is the section on YAML. So can you describe <laughs> what the section on YAML has and what the, I'm actually intrigued as to what the basis is for this stance. I do not have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure the section on YAML is one sentence, which is YAML is considered too insecure to use in new projects. Mm-hmm. Yep. To the point. <laughs> and that that's the entirety of, of YAML. The problem, maybe there's a Ruby specific problem with YAML, is that the YAML language is essentially a turn complete configuration language, 
which is not what you want your configuration language to be. And what that means is that your configuration files can contain executable code. So when you think of like JSON, you don't think of parsing JSON as running arbitrary code. But when you think of YAML, you should think of it as if you parse a YAML file, someone could easily have an rm-rf in there somewhere for the parser to execute. That's like part of the YAML specification is that you can just put arbitrary code in there as part of the deserialization process. And this has led to a serious number of vulnerability patches to the point where Rails used to accept YAML input, like you could accept JSON or XML or YAML. And it's now at the point where they had to disable that by default because you cannot securely accept YAML from untrusted sources. Would you go so far as to say, and I guess it's probably an easy thing if we just choose to move off of YAML entirely, but even if it's a like trusted static file within our source code repository, I'm guessing you would still recommend against YAML for the reasons of it's probably not a safe default, but... There are better configuration languages at this point. So obviously, if you control the entire YAML file, then the exploits are more minimal, but why bother? So would it be JSON that you would go for? Are there other ones that you... Yeah, JSON's fine. JSON's yeah. fine. It doesn't have comments it or trailing commas. Uh, trailing commas are the ones that get me. JSON's terrible. But JSON. <laughs> no, I agree. There's also like, was it Toml? That's what yeah. Cargo uses in Rust, if I remember correctly. So I assume Toml is a subset or is a YAML-like that does not have the execution things going yeah, exactly. on. That, that's good. Yeah. Trailing commas, though? Pretty sure it does. Yeah. I, just, I really care about trailing commas, it turns out. <laughs> Diff noise, man, it matters. So it's interesting. You talked at one point, uh, you sort of hinted at, like, there are different algorithms. And you don't need to necessarily know off the top of your head which one to use, but it's important to know where that question might apply, where, like, there are different algorithms that can be used for this. So can you talk a little bit about the space where, uh, I'm guessing it's hashing algorithms that you're referring to, but I'm wondering if there are more general other categories that have a similar sort of thing? Yeah, so there's actually two kinds of things in my head around this. And one is hashing. And so you have, like, the SHA-256, SHA-384, whatever. And then you have the bcrypt and scrypt and all those ones. And those are both hashing algorithms, on the technicality, but there's a series of attacks that depend on the fact that the SHA algorithms are fast. And so if you have a fast hashing algorithm, this means that you can throw modern GPUs at generating hashes. So let's say you have a hash and you want to find the password that goes for it. If you have an MD5, right, something very easy to break, you can throw a GPU at that and solve that in an amount of time, uh, within a lifetime. There are slower algorithms that act like hashing algorithms. So bcrypt is one example where it is intentionally slow. For someone authenticating in a very normal channel in your app, it's totally fine for it to take a second for the hashing algorithm to finish. But if you're trying to generate hashes really, really quickly, it's not practical at that point. So that's just an interesting thing to note is that you actually want a slow hashing algorithm. It's one of the rare things where being slow is actually a design feature that you're looking for. Exactly. And then another thing that comes to mind is the difference between symmetric and asymmetric encryption. And briefly, the actual difference is symmetric encryption. Both you and I have the password. And so if, if either of us have the message, we can use the same password to decrypt it. Asymmetric, I can encrypt it and I may not be able to decrypt it. Only the person with the private key can decrypt it. 
So PGP or TLS are asymmetric and AES is symmetric. So it's not just who controls the private keys, but the size of the data that we're dealing with. So an asymmetric encrypted message is larger than a symmetric encrypted message usually. And so that's going to be more bytes sent across the wire. There's going to be more things to store. And so TLS is not actually an asymmetric encryption algorithm. It's a protocol for starting with asymmetric encryption and then using that to negotiate on asymmetric encryption and then continuing with the symmetric encryption within there. And they do that for performance reasons. So it starts with a large, expensive uh, negotiation and then quickly switches to symmetric. And from there, it's a smaller amount of data being passed around. Interesting. I think I've followed all of that. There's also, uh, at some point, there was a video that I saw online that explained, I believe it was the TLS handshake sequence Mm -hmm. using paint colors. Okay. And so it starts with, like, I have my secret over here, which is this color. You have your secret over here. So you start by sending me this. I mix mine in, send that back. You mix yours in, send that back. And someone following along in the middle of the conversation is never able to see enough of the information. But it was interesting the way they used color as a representation of the information encoded at any given point. And at the end, they end up with the same mixed color, but without Mm -hmm. ever exchanging enough information for someone in the middle to see it. So we can include a link to that. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah, it was a fun one. I would call myself very much an armchair hobbyist password encryption. I I am interested in that category (laughs) of stuff. And basically the arms race that goes on there Mm -hmm. where, okay, so like first you just store the password in plain text and that's a thing. That's mm-hmm. pretty easy to crack because it's just available. So, okay, what if we change it somehow with a secret key? Okay, right. we can do that, but then they can also do that. So what if we have an algorithm that takes a while? Right. Okay, cool. Now we're making it harder for them to do it for each one. And one of the things that I've heard, I'm actually interested in how these two factors play together, is using multiple rounds of a given algorithm hmm. as an additional way to increase the difficulty which I'm wondering how that plays alongside with the idea of having a inherently more costly encryption algorithm. Like, is uh, it just to make the default safe? Is that the reason for we, we want them to be slower rather than using more trips through? Yes, it's to make it safer by default. And Bcrypt, I'm going to get all these numbers wrong. Uh, Bcrypt has a high number of rounds. Yeah, that's all I know about that. Like Once you get into the details of how these algorithms work, I'm going to get a little more... Uh, I think that's fine. I mean, I, I think it's starting with what you said at the very beginning is like, I think these are areas for where it's good for folks to have familiarity to know that this is a concern. Right. To know like definitively, we should not store our passwords in plain text. But mm-hmm. then there's a couple of more layers, it turns out, to that one that we need to keep adding on. And so I'm okay with the fact that you don't know the exact number of rounds that Bcrypt uses. There's another layer to the evolution, which was rainbow tables, which is so you have these hashed passwords now and So you can have this giant list of this string generates this hash. And so if an attacker has that and they get access to your hashed passwords, they can just look up what string generates it. And so the next step was salts. Every person who signs up, every password we hash, we generate a random number. We store that in the database and we generate the hash by taking the user's password, appending the random number and hashing that. And so what this means is that it effectively breaks a rainbow table. So just because you have the hash doesn't mean you can figure out what string generated it. There's still like a random string that you have to append to the end. You have to know which one's the random string and which part's the password. 
So although password may show up too many times in mm-hmm. the list of input <laughs> passwords, password one two three eight nine four six whatever yeah. salt that you're tacking on there means that each one is you're basically starting from scratch for each password that someone might want to attack. Exactly. There's a thing that I've thought about a few times, and I've never actually gone so far as to like try the calculations. But we talk about passwords in terms of complexity mm-hmm. or iterations of the algorithm that we're using for hashing. But I wonder how difficult it would be to have something that's looking up the prices of AWS EC2 instances. And so that tells you what compute costs at this given time. And then you want to dynamically fix the cost needed to break your password uh-huh. and make sure it doesn't take 10 seconds to log into the website, but say like, I want it to cost a million dollars to crack any password on this website. <laughs> and as EC2's prices go down, it means that we need to up the rounds of iteration that we're doing because uh-huh. the computes become like, you can distribute this pretty widely across a bunch of machines. So yeah, I want a million dollar password, I think. <laughs> right. You're touching on another topic, which is password expiration, right? I am. You are, right? Because I didn't think I was. Because Tell if, me more. <laughs> if you generate a password today that costs a million dollars to mm. compute, in five years, it might not, but you might have the same password. So my advice is find a password that will cost a million dollars to compute in five years. If you can, if you can predict that. So, okay, a bunch. Uh, now there's some stuff here. So, when you first started to say password expiration, I thought you were implying that I was implying that it is good to expire passwords, uh-huh. like to expire them on your user and say, you have to rotate your password once every six months, which I'm definitively not in favor of that. Right. I mentioned that in the document, actually. NIST, the national group who cares about this stuff, advises against expiring passwords as well. It leads to users taking the same password they already have and adding the number one to the end. Mike, you're telling everyone about my passwords. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah, no, we've, we've all done that. We've yeah. all lived that life. The NIST document is linked to from your document, right? That's right. Okay, I'll include a link to that one as well. I was very happy and I'm going to be honest, somewhat surprised when that came out because yep. it was just a collection of some very straightforward, what I thought were very reasonable baselines of, yep, this is good security. And because it's now backed by sort of governmental standardization, it's Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 no. please, airline or bank, Mm -hmm. when I tell you that your password stuff is bad, (laughs) I can point at this and you should believe me now. So coming back to that, now that we've said that not that kind of expiration, what you're describing is if we want to continually increase or maintain the cost as computing effort is becoming more available over time. My understanding of the way that you would do that is you decide at some point to increase your algorithm, but then you have a temporary Mm -hmm. period where you essentially know what the inputs to the compute function were for the given hash that you have. The next time the user signs in, you have a reference to their password. You check it against the existing hash using the existing inputs. You then run it a second time Mm -hmm. to create the new, more robust hash, and then you replace the old hash. Is that the way that that would be done? That's right. And we did that in Clearance, which is our authentication gem for Ruby on Rails, where we switched from, I forget what the default was, might have been SHA or something, to bcrypt as the default clearance password hasher. And so we had to provide a mechanism for all of our clearance users to migrate everyone over. And so, yeah, we did the algorithm you described. I I don't think I've ever used that in practice, although maybe I was using clearance on a project and didn't know and it was just doing it for me. If so, thank you to the heroes who wrote that into clearance. That's amazing. 
But I wonder then if we're describing a situation where you're gradually ratcheting it up over time, like once mm-hmm. a year, you go spot check the AWS costs, decide how much, what's inflation in this world, and then you try and increase the complexity or the round of iterations that you use to offset that. But if you're doing that on a rolling basis, and what if you have someone who didn't sign in for the past three years, yeah. I guess you have to store the counts. You have to say this password was calculated with 1000 iterations of Bcrypt. Right. And then the next time it's 1500 and the next time it's 2000. Right. You would have to add a column to your, t- your user's table describing how the password should be measured. At some point, you'll have to retire those accounts, right? And tell them like, you know, if you want your account back, you need to sign in within the next six months. Otherwise, we're going to make it really hard to get your account back. Or like reset password, I guess, at that point. So now we've invalid. Yep. The only way for you to log back in is through that mechanism, right? Which I'll be honest, I haven't read the entirety of the document, and I apologize <laughs> for that. But does it cover reset passwords and that as a mechanism of trust? No, I totally left that out. What uh, What are your feelings on the matter? I tend to think of it as like the email address that I'm sending an email to that must be a perfectly trustworthy source of someone identifying themselves. But that, as I say it, sounds like a complicated line in the sand to draw. So what do, you, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance to that. I cannot think of a better way to reset password than the way we do it currently with sending a link with an email. But in order to make that more trustworthy, you have to verify the email address when the user signs up, which is a thing we increasingly do not do. And then also make sure they continue to have that email address. And so, for example... If someone were to mistakenly leave ThoughtBot and take a job elsewhere, then their email address would no longer be valid. So if I did a forgot password for their email address and then had access to reading their email, I assume the admin of our Google accounts can do that. Yeah, Matt Jankowski can see everything. Yeah, then they would have your password reset. Which in the context of this organization, I'm fine with that because that's one of many things that I trust the admin of our organization with. I guess I've never really looked into email that much, but there are some weird things like spoofed Mm -hmm. emails that there are systems in place that help. But as far as I can tell, they're mostly heuristic. And like I got a call from my mother-in-law one day saying like, you sent me an email, but it looks bad. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I did not send that. And I have not been hacked. This is just a reality of the world. And I think MSN is her email Uh provider and it does not have the best spam filtering. So she has a lot of these coming through. Yeah. And email is a complicated one. Yeah. Anyone can send an email pretending to be anyone. The like verification processes we have are not very good. So it's like DCIM and SPF and all these acronyms. And then there's also the like PGP signing of your emails, which that one is like a guarantee that the email is from whoever owns that private key. And then you have to get into a web of trust. And then if the email is not signed, you don't necessarily know to look for a signature, right? So like if you go to some website and you click forgot password and you get an email with the link, are you going to check the signature for the email? And if if there's no signature, then are you going to not click the link? The answer is probably no, you'll just click the link. Yeah, what would be like if it is an organization that often uses signed Mm -hmm. emails, if you receive one that is not 
do you have the recall at that point to know right. you should be looking for a signature because a non-signed email is that's most emails are not signed. That's right. I'm not a person who uses PGP or anything like it for email, which I'm a little sad about when I say it out loud, especially <laughs> here on a podcast, but it's a good thing. But I think it's one of those things that we have just continually struggled to find the usability yep. interface that, that makes it comfortable for enough people. But it would be a nice world where like a non-signed email is a thing that we that's that's not real. You don't do that. Right. But we are far from that place right now, unfortunately. Although I have increasingly stopped signing emails unless I intend to sign them, because then we get to the topic of provability and uh, there's some other words that I forgot. But basically, if you get an email that is signed by my private key, that means that whoever controls my private key signed that email. And so... I read paragraphs and headlines about this, but I might have the facts wrong, that during the Silk Road trial, what's his name? Dread Pirate. Yeah, Dread Pirate Roberts. Dread Pirate Roberts. What a handle. Had uh, sent some emails saying like, hey, go kill this person and signed it with his PGP key. And then at court, they're like, did you send this email? And he's like, no. And they're like, oh, here's a mathematician to say that you did. And he's like, oh, fine, you got me. And, you know, I don't need that kind of accountability on my hands. That's interesting. The the nature of how provability is interacting with privacy there is not something that I've thought about at all. But Mm -hmm. inherently, by virtue of saying this definitively is from me, Mm -hmm. you've now said it's from me, (laughs) which that's a whole thing right there. (laughs) Right. And do you really want that kind of responsibility? (laughs) <laughs> with great power comes or no great responsibility comes great power i don't yeah i to say which one, comes but, first i do sign yeah. my git commits especially for the open source projects because there is that potential problem of things being hacked and it's nice to be able to trace the tags that are signed back through all the commits i heard rumor that lunus torvalds had organized a group to like go through all the remotes for various linux branches and you know consolidate anything that was missing like check in on, on that kind of stuff. Just go find like rogue commits to Linux and merge them back in. Essentially, yes, ish. Like find rogue commits from actual people whose commits you wanted to merge in and make sure they were merged. And in the process, they found some commits that had not been signed by PGP keys, although all the others had. So they're like, oh, that's odd. Let's look into those commits specifically. And they found that someone had made a fork of Linux that was like being used by a group of people and someone had snuck in an exploit, like didn't increment a counter variable or something in a way that was exploitable. And by checking the unsigned commits, they could find that. I'm going to be honest. How does anything work at all? Oh, computers don't work. But they do also. Like we're having an internet call and then it's going to go out and people are going to listen to it on their phones. Enough stuff works enough of the time that I am surprised. I agree with that. But enough stuff breaks enough of the time that I don't understand why we're doing any of this. (laughs) In my mind, it doesn't break in catastrophic ways. I agree that software as a whole is more broken than I would want it to be, that Mm -hmm. failure and error messages are so much more common, both in terms of like end user software usability and everybody has seen like Java null pointer exceptions. Every human on the planet (laughs) has seen that. And that's a failure on our part as, as just like people doing this thing. Yes. But I'm more intrigued by the fact that I install from various package managers all the time. Yeah. And uh, this is begging the world to ruin my day, but I don't think I've had a single instance of having exploited code on my machine. As I say Mm -hmm. that, I'm actually going to retract that and say I almost certainly have, but it's Mm -hmm. never impacted me. 
Yeah, I have never been attacked by exploited vulnerable code, me personally. I do obviously have code with exploits installed, and we're about to find out what they are next time some new exploit comes out, right? Like we all had OpenSSL installed when Heartbleed came out. Mm -hmm. We were lucky is what that came down to. It's just, it's so much luck for so long that Mm -hmm. it feels like, I don't know, I'm I'm grateful for it, but... Yeah. Yeah, actually, you know, everyone should probably read this document and the other the NIST one too. That's a good one. We should yeah. we should all read these things because there is a lot of low-hanging fruit in this area yeah. and when I hear about various exploits and it's like, "Oh yeah, it turns out that company has millions of passwords stored in plain text." Yeah. It's like, "How how did that happen?" The recent string of password leaks that I've heard about were people hashing the passwords in the database, following all the guidelines there, but then logging everything to the log. And so passwords just logged in plain text. Facebook had this one. It was like hundreds of millions. Yeah, that's right. It's funny. I have the document that you wrote up in front of me and the logging section is the one that's centered (laughs) on my screen. And I see right there in Rails, we use the filter parameters configuration to remove specific attributes. But it's interesting because often we'll have password that's by default in that list. But token is the thing that will come along. And token should also often be filtered depending on what token means in your application. But if you don't add it to that list, I don't believe token is by default one that gets filtered. Yeah, I don't think it is either. And then another example is like maybe you have a second factor authentication and you send the second factor via email or you send like a device registration token that you have to type in. That email gets logged a lot of the times. That email goes through various servers. Then we get back to the the insecurity of email. So like maybe you're not logging it, but maybe the mail server you're sending it through logs everything. That kind of stuff. It's a lot. It's a bunch of stuff. I had an experience recently where I was interacting with my bank, banks, banks and software and security, and they needed to verify something with me. And so they called me on the phone and I didn't answer at the time, but they left a message. So I went to their website and verified in two different locations, their phone number, because I've read enough horror stories (laughs) about this to know, like, I'm going to really confirm that I have the right phone number here. I checked for HTTPS up in the URL, tried to do all the things got the phone number, called them up. And then they started asking me a series of questions. Like they asked me for my pin code. Mm -hmm. It's like, "Mm." I mean, I don't really believe that one's terribly secure at all because it's six digits and that's not a very big combinatoric space. But okay, there's my pin code. And then they sent me a two-factor auth code via text Mm -hmm. and they asked me for that. And that was the one where I paused and I said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this. Is there an alternative way that we can verify because I've seen that one enough, and I've actually seen many companies add to the text message that gets sent, we will never ask you for this on the phone. Okay. Please do not ever tell us this on the phone, because it's <laughs> if a bad actor gets your password, right. but you have two-factor enabled, yep. they can call you on the phone, and they'll be on the login page. They'll have typed in your password and everything. Go to the next page, and then they call you, trigger a mm-hmm. one-time passcode to be sent and then they ask you for it and if you tell them they now have logged in with both factors as you that's right and i was so troubled that my bank was asking me for the second factor code over the phone because it's like yeah. that's no that defeats <laughs> the hope but i guess they were in a mode where they wanted to know who i was for some reason right. which i found very odd everything seems fine they were calling me for reasonable reasons all was good in the world but mm-hmm. i was my security spidey sense was on high alert that day. Right. Yeah. I mean, phones are also a known exploit vector, and that's why you shouldn't even send second factor via SMS if you have the option. That seems generally true, but I, I don't actually understand the subtleties. Is it just that SMS as a protocol is unsecure? 
like it's the equivalent of HTTP and not HTTPS? Is it that sort of thing? This is true about SMS and also SIM cards are insecure and you can easily spoof SIM cards and adopt someone else's phone number. Now that's a targeted attack. So maybe you're not a target, but that is a thing. As a personal story uh, for this one, my partner wanted to, she like found that if she and I were on a family plan, then it would be cheaper for her. And so she just walked into T-Mobile and said, hi, I would like to switch Mike Burns onto this plan and also have me join that. And they're like, oh yeah, sure, totally. We can do that. And then I'm like at an airport trying to meet someone and my phone goes dead. Uh, (laughs) And then like, they're having some sort of technical problem on the T-Mobile side. And she's like, oh, can you switch it back? And, And they're like, oh, we can't switch it back without him verifying something. So they could switch it away, but not back. Oy. So lessons learned there around a lot of things, really. I had a similar experience at one point, but much more low tech. My wife was traveling and there was a snowstorm coming into town and she had left her car on the street where we had street parking at the time, mm-hmm. but the town had declared a snow emergency. And so all cars had to be off the street, but she had accidentally taken the one set of keys for her car with her on her trip. So I was like, um, hmm, okay. So I called AAA and I was right. like, hey, can you come move this car? And they showed up and I was like, I don't have the keys. And they're like, okay. And then they just dragged the car up onto the back of a flatbed uh-huh. and took it to a random other place that I told them to take it to. And then the best thing was because the car, they couldn't get into it. It's just on this flatbed. And so they tilt it back down. And the person controlling it just took the hydraulic arm and just shook it. So the whole <laughs> bed was just shaking back and forth to jostle the car off of it. And then once one set of wheels was off, uh, he was able to drive out from underneath it. But the whole experience, I'm just like, really? <laughs> it's that easy to steal a car? And uh, obviously, I was not stealing a car in this case. I was doing a good thing. But right. I guess that analogy actually gets to the idea of social engineering. Yep. And just that being such a large uh, oh, yeah. exploit vector. And are you familiar with the company FishMe? Yeah, I've heard of them. So FishMe, as far as I understand it, is a company. And there are, I think, a few in this space. But it's the idea of testing around an organization's preparedness for social engineering. So a company will contract with them and say, mm-hmm. can you please essentially attack our employees? They will then send targeted emails to the employees of the company to try and get them to click a malicious link or something like that or download a document or anything like that. And once they've triggered the malicious thing, it won't actually do anything bad. It just says this person did this thing. And so then the organization gets a complicated list of, well, 90 of you did a great job, (laughs) but four of you definitely downloaded the virus and all of our information would have been lost. So then they can have training and things around that. And I like the model there of Mm -hmm. doing the real thing in order to test and see how much this is on people's minds and how weary they are of emails that ask them to download and install random executables and things like that. Yeah. And that reminds me, like, part of the point of the guide that I wrote was us as programmers, we have a large responsibility to make sure we do a good job. A lot of our job is sometimes writing emails that get automatically sent out. And it's important for us to consider what behaviors we're encouraging in these emails and if we have like, like, oh, you need to download this program. Here's an email with a link to download it. That might not be behavior we want to encourage. Really, for me, I don't click links in emails. They're always um, exploits. So, it's so you never click a, a link in an email. 
Pretty much never, yeah. What is your mechanism then otherwise? How do you go to the place that the URL says? I will type it manually and like navigate there. Like phishing is a major problem too, where like you can make the letter A look like various other forms of the letter A. But if you type it manually, then you are in control of that letter A. I definitely don't do this thing that you're describing of not <laughs> clicking links in emails. As you're saying, and I'm like, yeah, I probably shouldn't click. I, I'm very careful and yeah. I'm very weary of the things that I do click. But there are so many links that are these long obfuscated. It's essentially security by obscurity because a lot of those links can often authenticate you into an application in addition. It's sort of what we were talking about with password reset, but it's another layer beyond that of from a business perspective, it can be nice to send marketing emails that automatically log the person in if they're not logged in already. Mm -hmm. But that's a dangerous, complicated thing. Right. And that gets into trouble when you have web email clients, as a lot of people seem to do these days, where... (laughs) A lot of people dabbling in those web email clients. Yeah, it's a fad. I don't expect it to last. Everyone's going to switch back to Mutt any day now, where you combine that with the fact that that's a GET request. And GET requests are idempotent, and you can just follow them. And so if you have like some performance optimizations enabled in your browser that will prefetch GET requests, you are now prefetching authenticated links if you open your email. And I have heard of various problems come, come about this when you have pre-authenticated links that will like delete something or like here's an email for the thing that you've ordered. Would you like to add it to your cart? Here's a pre-authenticated link that your browser can just follow. A pre-authenticated and I think the other factor that you're describing there is non-item potent. So it's taking an action on the server. In theory, well, adding something to your cart, if it will do that every time you hit the link, then that's truly non-item potent. If it's transitioning the state of something, I think that could still be described as item potent because it'll have the same effect if run multiple times. But still, if the email client is doing that and then like if you just reload your email client a bunch of times... That's interesting. I feel like most email clients, there's an iframe that wraps the inner HTML that they're rendering. So there's like the outer Chrome of the web app, and then the frame that's displaying the email is an iframe. But I don't know that that actually means anything or still could be prefetching for any reason. Yeah, you get into a lot of complications there. And I feel like the browser monopoly has figured this out, but the competitors in the free market of the browser space still have to compete there, of which there are none, obviously. (laughs) What with Google making both the browser and the web mail that you're probably making reference to, yep. they probably thought about this one. Yep. I will say one security thing that I have enjoyed recently is I've been working on a client laptop. They gave us machines for security reasons and mm-hmm. as part of their network. Uh, but one of the things that comes with it is a second factor key. Nice. Like a which I have never worked with think it's a YubiKey or it's a very similar device. It's something like that. And it's fantastic. Yeah. I really enjoy it. I thought I would hate it, too, because I thought it was like, man, it's an extra step for everything I have to do. And I do have to physically contact it to Mm -hmm. use it, which I didn't know that that was the way they worked. But it's not a password sensor, which I also I've seen pictures of them. They seem to have a little circle on them. And I thought that was a password sensor on some Mm -hmm. of them or not a password, but a fingerprint sensor. But as far as I can tell, it's just basically electrical connection to say, yes, I, I grant to this website. Those are really, really smart, too. So we can talk about like the two-factor auth apps. So like uh, Google Authenticator and then the better ones. But what are the better ones? Anything that's open source and not made by the browser monopoly. But then it's still software. It's still on your phone. It's still like, you know, lots of problems around that. Like a dedicated piece of hardware, that's, that's smart stuff. And then you can integrate it with like single sign-in mechanisms very nicely. 
the organization that I'm working with has single sign-on done in a way I've basically as a rule, I found single sign-on to be complicated, both in terms of implementing it for any organization that I've worked with and now using it for the various clients that have it. It always seems kind of like a hack and a kludge and you have to go to this magic website and click the magic link to log in through the fancy door. This interaction that I've had has been the first time. It's just kind of seamless. I have one password that is for everything. I have this key that I touch whenever I need to add a second layer of authentication. And it is seamless and fantastic. So it gives me hope for this world. But the other thing, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you were describing how like in the URL, certain characters from, say, different alphabets can look like you know, say a C or a G or something like that. And so it's possible to spoof a domain, have it look like it's HTTPS Mm google.com, but it's definitely not. Mm -hmm. If I'm just using my two-factor app and I'm human interventioning to type in my two-factor code from that, I can be tricked, but these keys will not. That's right. And that's the benefit of a password manager as well, in general, is they're tied to the domain name. And so if the domain name does not match, then it does not provide the password. Do you have a recommended password manager? I use the standard password manager, Pass, which is based on PGP, and it's a lot of work, and I am a big fan of it. Do you synchronize your, I guess there's a Pass database that you have there, and do you synchronize that across devices? Oh, I can tell you the details of the protocol. Uh, so <laughs> you have a directory called dot password store inside there, kind of up to you, but you have files named like google.com.gpg. And that's a PGP encrypted file where the first line is your google.com password. And then what I do is I check it into a Git repo. And that's how I share it. So do you have a personal server that you're pushing and pulling from and synchronizing across? That's how I do it is I have my own personal server with a Git server on there. And I push it to that and then pull from that remote. But since it's PGP encrypted, you could, in theory, put it on like GitHub or GitLab Mm -hmm. or anything like that. I just don't have enough trust to do that. But in theory, it's fine. If there were ever like a zero day of the password encryption, then you're like, oh, dang, I was safe until I wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's interesting, though, saying that you put it in a Git repo. So do you have a manual step of committing and pushing and then pulling and synchronizing and dealing with any like not merge conflicts? I'm guessing that, well, they might actually. Hopefully Is all of that part of the workflow for you or no? Okay, so now we're going to go full Mike Burns here. Let's do it. That's why we brought you on. Yes, that is my workflow. So go back to what I said, I do not use pass the standard Unix password manager. I instead wrote my own implementation of pass because pass is written in GNU bash. And I don't actually use anything that has GNU bash installed in my free time. And so it's just like, I don't really want to install this dependency just to like GPG two dash D a file. So I wrote like a small script that will like It'll run uh, pwgen to generate a password for me or gpg2-d to get the password out. On my phone, I do have the Android app that someone else wrote. It's pretty good. It automatically synchronizes. You can like press a button and it will sync. And then I also wrote a GUI tool uh, for GTK that will show you your, your list of all your domain names and have a little search box. And then it connects to Firefox or Google Chrome to figure out what domain you're currently looking at and then pre-fill the search box. So there's that. That sounds not even that complicated. It's super simple. Yeah. 
so I'm a LastPass user, mm -hmm. and I believe strongly in password managers, but there is a huge vote of faith in that organization or any organization mm -hmm. that is managing this to have all of their ducks in a row. Yeah. Because any small exploit at any point in the browser extension or their server or the mobile app that I use or any of these things. And uh, somebody's got everything. That's everything is in there. Yeah. And I have tried over time to reduce the amount of personal weird scripts that I'm managing and running just because maintaining them at like, mm -hmm. oh no, the operating system has changed. And now I don't have that library. How do I link to this? Mm -hmm. It's just not necessarily work that I want to do anymore. Mm. You're almost convincing me that this is one that I might want to take back into my own control and get real serious about it. I don't know. We'll see, we'll see what happens. But I encourage it. But also, you don't have to write your own software. You can just use the pass command line tool. There's probably a macOS GUI that someone... Oh, yeah. Our coworker, Sid, wrote. Sid was actually just on a very recent episode. So Yeah, I've heard good things about coming on here from him. <laughs> yeah, like you don't actually have to implement anything. You just need a Git repo that you can push to. I do have, although I don't have private Git repository. And so this would get me back into the world of hosting a server. And that is one thing that I've opted out of over time. Okay. Security is the main reason. I don't necessarily want to have to maintain that server and ensure that I am updating the operating system and updating the packages. And yep. it's very doable, but it's not necessarily work that I would want to do. So now it's like, I do want to be able to have this on my phone and on my computer or on multiple computers. That's a kind of a core feature here. But yeah. Do I want to run my own server again? So you don't need your own server, right? Uh, now we're going to get into implementation details. Because a Git server is a directory with a .git folder in it. And to make it a server, you have like SSH access to it or something. So you could have a laptop with that Git repo in it. And then anytime your phone connects to Wi-Fi, you can have it use that laptop as the server. Like a local Wi-Fi mesh network type thing? Not even mesh, but just like if you're both on the same network, you can SSH from your phone to your laptop. And You can? Yeah. Wow. I All can. right. I should try that. That sounds fun. And moreover, like you could use the SSH protocol as the Git protocol to have it synchronized from your laptop as the server. All right. That's plausible. Coming back to another thing you said you described how you have your PGP encryption key, so your private key. Yeah. How important of an artifact do you consider that? Because in the same, like my phone number yeah. or my email address, I I am very protective of those. And if I were to lose them, that would be a big deal for me. Mm -hmm. And this thing that identifies you within webs of trust and is the way that you prove that you are who you are, mm -hmm. there's basically nothing else in my world that I care about that much as I think I would care about it. <laughs> it's almost a reason not to do it is because it would be too important in my mind. But yeah. am I telling myself stories there? Or? No, no, you're totally right. And you're, you're also touching on a major flaw in PGP, which is that it does not have perfect forward secrecy. So the problem with PHP is if you're able to crack... Sorry, you just said the problem with PHP, which Sorry. I'm happy to run on that topic, but oh. just <laughs> the problem with PGP, I'm guessing is what you meant. The problem with PGP... Oh my goodness. The problem with PHP, that's a big <laughs> one. The problem with PGP is that if you were to crack my private key, you would be able to decrypt anything that I've encrypted, that is encrypted for it. Whereas with things like Signal or some other newer protocols... The protocol itself regenerates private keys frequently. And so if you're able to crack one, you're able to see one message, but not all the messages. And so this means that your PGP private key now has way too much value. 
And you're right. Like if someone gets my private key, even though there's a passphrase on it, I now have to revoke that private key and it's no longer useful. I guess I wasn't even thinking of it necessarily from the how much they would now have access to. Like if they mm-hmm. had somehow gotten a copy of all the communications you had sent, they wouldn't necessarily, assuming you were encrypting as opposed to just signing, Yeah, they would have nothing until they got your key. But if they got your key, then they could read it all. That's obviously very bad. But I was thinking of it from the point of view of like, if you were to lose your phone number, yeah. then you need to go reach out to all of these people and say, oh, it's a new phone number here. Can you change your contact for me? Yep. And the work of doing that. It's weird that that's the direction my brain went in, not the, oh, no, all my secrets. Were, you know. <laughs> uh, all right. right. Well, anyway, we're just going to run with that being a fine point of view that I had. But both of those are so complex. Yeah. And so I my private key setup is obviously complicated because everything I do is obviously complicated. But I do have like a master private key that is backed up into I use Tarsnap for my backups, which is an S-Crypt from the creator of S-Crypt. So uses S-Crypt for encryption and then the encrypted file is backed up on S3. And so I have one backup of my private key, and then there's a private key for my backup encryption. So if I lose that and my private PGP key, then I'm totally hosed. So I have backups of the backups. Yeah, this is my life. It's a system. It's a thing. But I mean, like, it's not unconsidered. You've clearly put some thought into it, and you're definitely not wrong. Yeah. Like this level of thinking about and care in the way that you use your tools and structure your information. I think you're right. It's just a lot of work. And I wish we could figure out a better way to make that trade off not be what it is. Yeah. And to say I'm right is hopeful. (laughs) Uh, Then things like Spectre come out where like, oh, the hardware we're running on is insecure. You're right, given the constraints of the information we have at the time, which is the only form of right that I am capable of judging, I think. Right, So, And also, I'm not a target, right? If the actual governments of the world want to target me, none of these things I'm doing would be useful. Yeah, in theory, the CIA has exploits to some of these, like SHA-256. They may have been like, actually, we figured that one out, and we can generate collisions within the hash algorithm or things like that on demand. It's like, oh, that would be bad. Yep. And quite possibly it's true, so... Now the bike shed's on a watch list. <laughs> well, you, you can see in my security document that NIST no longer recommends SHA-256. And that, my understanding there is not because they figured out how to generate collisions, but because they figured out that very soon they will figure out how to generate collisions. Mm, that collisions are more likely due to some characteristic of the algorithm. Yeah, yeah. Or like performance of computers or whatever. I would love to continue talking about this for hours, but I think for now we have given a fun adventure through a lot of the things in the world of security. Again, I highly recommend folks check out this application security guide that you have introduced. And otherwise, where can folks find uh, more of your work on the internet or off the internet, I guess? On the internet, robots.thoughtbot.com. I write blog posts there sometimes. Mike-burns.com is an empty webpage that I can recommend. Very secure, I imagine, though. And also, I am at Mike Burns at Mastodon.technology. Perfect. At some point, we should have someone come on and talk about what Mastodon is. Edward Lovell, who was on another recent episode, just gave a lightning talk today in the Boston office about Mastodon. So I'm now a little more aware. Right on. But that is for another day. Well, Mike, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.
This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.